Lord, we thank You for a passage like this that lays bare the heart of a man that You have chosen to minister to Your people. Lord, I ask that as we come before You this morning and place ourselves under Your Word, that we would be truly receptive for what You have for us. Lord, we know that the devil will want to distract us and draw us away. But Lord, give us hearts that are fixed to You and to Your Word. Lord, what we know not, would You teach us? Lord, what we are not, would You make us? Lord, what we have not, would You give us? And allow me as Your messenger today to be the mouthpiece through which You will work among Your people fashion and shape them to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ, and to draw those who are unbelievers to the glorious, precious gospel that you accomplished on the cross. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. When I was in college, I served as a lifeguard, a head lifeguard at a Christian camp during the summers, and it was my job to teach and train the other counselors that were there how to have some basic life-saving skills. Because we had a big lake, and on that lake was a big swimming area, and there'd be lots of kids that were out there swimming in the water. And as a lifeguard, you had to be able to look out onto the water where the kids are and to be able to see and discern if there was some kind of a child or a teenager that was in panic mode and starting to drown. And and you you can learn that because something unique happens. And that is, there's this flopping that happens with the hands and the arms. Because the body goes into kind of a shock mode. It's doing everything it can to stay above the water. And so it's flopping around and trying to stay up. And so you have to be able to see that quickly. And as a head lifeguard, I did sit on that big lifeguard chair with my red shorts on and looking out there, hopefully looking cool. But I was there for a reason. I was there to care for the kids that were in the water. And so there were times when I saw the flopping going on. And what you have to do is you have to jump down carefully, land carefully, and keep your eye on where those people are. And then there's a, you run into the water, but you don't run in and put your head under the water. You've got to keep your eyes on the person and on that location. And you have to swim in a certain way that keeps your head above the water, but you're moving fast. And then when you get there, you have to assess the situation because People become their strongest when they are panicking and trying to survive. And so what you have to do is assess what the situation is and how I can get in there. And there are some times that you have to actually go up to the person and slap them in the face to get their attention, to let them know who's in charge because you don't want them grabbing all over you. You want to use the tools that you have techniques that you've been given, and so sometimes you have to do that, and then you're able to swim them to safety. And friends, what we have going on in our passage today is Ezra, the man of God, finding out that the people of Israel, some of the people of Israel have committed a great sin. They are flopping in the water, so to speak, and it is his job to rescue them from their sin. They are drowning in their sin. Look, if you would, please, at verse 6. Ezra is speaking about Israel in particular, but he's also including the people of that day. He says, their iniquities have risen higher than their heads. They are drowning in their sins. And Ezra now drops everything that he's doing to become the lifeguard and to, to lead them to safety. Now, we need to ask some questions about what is happening early in this text so that we can understand the force of the text. There's three questions I want us to, first of all, ask and answer. 
The first question is, what is the context? You notice the little phrase or a few words there at verse 1, after these things. Well, after what things? If you remember, Ezra gets to Jerusalem after this long journey. And you remember all the gold and the silver that they were bringing, about, about maybe, what, 5,000 or so people that were coming with them. And they finally get to Jerusalem. And Ezra chapter 10, verse 9, gives us an indication that what's happening at this point in time is four months after his arrival in Jerusalem. And if you remember, Ezra's passion was to teach the Word of God. He wanted to come and to show the relevance of the Word of God. He was actually given freedom by Artaxerxes to go back to the region beyond the river, which is Israel and Judea. And while he's there to establish the, the, the rule of law, so to speak, based on the Word of God. And so for four months, this has been happening. And so Ezra is, is, is now uh, teaching God's law. Again, that's the context. That's what's been happening. What then is the sin? Now, some officials approach Ezra and give a concerning report. There's two parts to this report. There's a general charge. And notice in verse 1, he says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said that the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. They haven't separated themselves. That was the general problem. They had violated God's commandment by not separating themselves from these people who practice abominations. The specific charge, though, is found as we continue on. Verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. So, the specific charge is the intermarrying. And in particular, we find at the end of verse 2, and in this faithfulness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. These are the leaders. And friends, this is not good news for Ezra. This is a shock to his system. What is the response then? How do we as people typically respond to sin? We attack. We rationalize. We deflect. We deny. We minimize. I can't believe that those officials would stoop so low to snitch on those men who had taken wives from foreign people, right? In today's culture, that's, that's a legitimate argument. How dare you open your mouth? and speak, and expose me, right? Who is it really harming anyway? It really isn't that big of a deal. Doesn't God want us to be happy, right? If two people are in love, isn't that all that matters? I get so offended. Doesn't God promise to give us the desires of our hearts? But friends, this is a huge and monumental problem for Israel. Israel, or in, in chapter um, 3 through 5 of the book of Ezra, Israel is under Zerubbabel's care, and the real issue is this attack from the outside. But now, in verses 9 through 10, the, the attack is coming from the inside. And this is a new strategy or a different strategy, so to speak, of the enemy. And so this is significant, friends. This is monumental. So how does Ezra respond? Well, he responds really in two ways, physically and then in prayer. And that's how the, the chapter really unfolds. And there are two words that summarize and describes Ezra's initial response. In verse 3, we find out he is appalled. Have you ever been appalled at something? It's not the kind of word we use anymore, is it? I'm appalled that they would do that. I don't think that it has the same weight that it is supposed to have here. The idea is I am shocked. <laughs> I am dumbfounded. Then also in verse 6, he says, I'm ashamed. And it's from this position of shock and shame that Ezra models for us a God-honoring response to sin. And that is our proposition for this morning. What does God, or what does a God-honoring 
response to sin look like? What should Ezra be doing? How should he be responding as a leader? What should the people of Israel be doing under these circumstances? What should their response to their sin be? What should be our response when we hear of uh, when we hear when God reveals the sin of a brother or sister in Christ in the context of our church? What should our response be to that sin? And what should our response be when God confronts us with our sin? So Ezra 9 reveals three God-honoring responses to sin. Number one, we must agree with the conclusion of Scripture. We must agree with the conclusion of Scripture. How do we know what is right or wrong? Friends, it's not by our feelings. Now, don't get me wrong. God has created us to feel things and to feel things deeply. I know that because I feel things deeply. You feel things deeply. It's a wonderful thing that God has given us to express emotions and feelings. But in today's culture, what you feel matters most. It is the the source of truth. If I am physically a man, but I feel like I'm a woman, then what I feel is true in today's world. That's how people function. What I feel rules everything. Feelings trump facts. But friends, our feelings are not the source of knowing what is right or wrong. I don't feel like disciplining my rebellious child. I don't feel like loving my husband or my wife. I don't feel like telling the truth in this situation. I don't feel like I want to enter into this confrontation, I, I feel more like I want to have safety and peace. What I feel is fear, so I don't talk about my walk with God. Friends, no, your feelings are not the standard of what is right and wrong. Neither is your conscience. Now, a conscience is a wonderful tool that God has put in every one of us. But a conscience is also in the makeup of humanity that is unbelieving. And so the world has a conscience, right? You put a plastic bag and you don't put it in the garbage? Or you put a plastic bag in the green can? <gasps> conscience! Flying all over the place here. You have violated society's conscience. But friends, conscience is a wonderful thing. And, and hear this, an unbeliever, although they have a conscience, trains that conscience according to the world's thinking and beliefs. A Christian, however, seeks to maintain a conscience that is fashioned and shaped by the Word of God. And so although our conscience is a helpful tool to alert us to moral danger, by itself it is not the standard or source of right or wrong. The third thing, though, is this. It is the breathed out and revealed Word of God that is the source of what is true and what is not true. It is always the Word of God that is the source, the standard, and the authority of measuring what is right or wrong. And God has revealed His heart in the pages of His Word, hasn't He? And He is the standard of what is right and wrong, and He's revealed that to us through His Word. Now, the Word of God does two things. It teaches what sin is, and it teaches what sin does. Let's take the first one there. The Scriptures teach us what sin is. And now we're jumping into the actual story and the text that we have before us. In the context, again, what we have here is four months of Ezra coming back to Jerusalem and beginning to teach the Word of God. And he's doing that in Jerusalem and Judea. And that's why the officials come to Ezra with the shocking news of Israel's sin, they had been taught the Word of God. And now the Word of God has exposed the sin of the people, and they now know what sin is. So friends, the accusations the officials make are not about some obscure sin and some obscure passage in the Bible, although if there's an obscure sin that's mentioned in the Bible, it's just as valid there. But this is not what's going on here. This is Jews living according to the law 101. This is just the basic life standard that God has given Israel. And what they realize is that some of the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, have not separated themselves 
from the people of the land with their abominable practices. Now, to the casual reader, this might be difficult to understand, but Ezra is appalled when he hears about the Jews marrying pagans because he knew that God's word condemned it, strongly condemned it. Notice what verse 10 says. For we have forsaken your commandments. This is what's happening here. God had commanded something, and they are forsaking it by intermarriage. And then what does he do? He goes on to cite and summarize God's clear prohibition against intermarriage with the pagans of the land, and primarily he's focusing on two passages of Scripture, Exodus chapter 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 7. And what the officials come to Ezra, when they come to Ezra to make this report, they're coming using the language of those Scriptures. These were instructions God gave Israel right before they came into the Promised Land. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7, please. I want you to see this, and I want you to see the importance of this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. What does that mean? Wipe them off the face of the earth. Right? You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Now, if the commandment is to go in there and be this agent of judgment because of the wickedness of this people, that's what, this was, that's what was going on here, and the, 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 the instruction is to deliver them to destruction, you would think that was sufficient. But God goes on and he says, and make no covenant with them. In other words, don't bargain with them. And then he says, show no mercy to them. And then he says, don't intermarry them. We're, we're supposed to go. We're supposed to be agents of judgment to wipe them off the face of the planet. And you might say, oh, that's really offensive. This is God judging sin. And Israel being the agent of that judgment, friends. This is what happens when the Lord comes back. He's going to judge people for their sin that they are responsible for. But Israel... For whatever reason, God in his wisdom knows that they're not going to do it. And so he also says, and by the way, don't marry them. It's like, well, if we're already off the face of the planet, why would I even think about marrying them? See the problem here? Now, friends, what, is, what was the problem? It wasn't a problem of racism. Now, some might say, oh, yeah, these are the people of the land. They're all different races. That is not the issue here. They're, the goal here is not to preserve a holy ethnic identity. Now, certainly some in church history have come to passages like this and say, yes, interracial marriage is a sin, and in particular, it's a sin between certain ethnic groups. That's not what the Scripture is about. What's going on here is a religious problem. From the formation of Israel, they were an ethnic people. That is true. But more fundamental to their identity than their ethnicity was the fact that they were a religious community. They were a people who had been chosen by God, set apart for a relationship with him. He had redeemed them from the land of slavery. He had given them a moral law. He had given them the sacrificial law. But God also had a missional agenda through Israel. Do you know this? This is why Jonah was sent to where? Nineveh. To take the truth of who God is to these pagan people who are wicked people. It was always this missional agenda. And that's why when you see Israel leaving Egypt, we're told there in Exodus there was a mixed multitude that went with them. There were Gentiles who joined up with the Jews and followed the God of Israel. It's always a missional agenda going on here. 
So these nations that are listed here, Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, these nations engage in abominable religious practices, cultic prostitution, child sacrifice. They were an offense to God. And so because of this evil, Israel was given this unique mission to be the agents of God's judgment. So Israel was told not to engage in any treaties, not to engage in any, uh, any uh, marriage. Notice verse 12 now. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for you, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Right, just a few questions, friends, just for us to ponder and think about. How do we view God's word? Do we agree with what God says? Or do we resent it? Do we welcome the correction and guidance from God's word? Or do we get angry with it? Do we listen to God's word with the goal of obedience? Or do we ignore God's call to repent and obey? Do we pay attention to God's word and take it seriously? Or do we approach it casually, as if God is only making a suggestion? Do we tremble at God's word, realizing that God has spoken? Or are we unmoved by his counsel? In the scriptures, God teaches what sin is. In the scriptures, God also teaches what sin does. In our passage, not only do we, we're told that the, 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 the sin of intermarriage will draw you away from the Lord, but its goal will to play, be to place you into bondage. And what do we find repeatedly said in this passage? We are in slavery. We are slaves. We are in slavery. We are in bondage. Look at verse 7. And for the iniquities, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the land to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame. And what Ezra is doing at this point in his prayer is he's reflecting on God's interaction with Israel through the years. And quite frankly, what's happening here is, is Ezra is just realizing this is no different now with what was happening back then that even brought us into the place of judgment and sent us into captivity. Friends, sin turns us away from following God. It, it enslaves us. It brings shame to Christ and the gospel. It results in judgment. It undermines our witness. It destroys our relationships. And God and his word is screaming at us to pay attention to the bondage and destruction that comes when we sin. So the first thing is we must agree with the conclusion of Scripture. Secondly, we must mourn over the sinfulness of our sin. Let me go back to these two words that I mentioned earlier. And it's an amazing picture. Ezra, first of all, sits appalled. Look, at, you would please, at verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. <laughs> Ezra's reaction is physically violent. Tore his garments, pulled his hair from his head. Some of us will have difficulty with that. Sat in shock, dumbfounded, appalled at what he was fearing. He is a physical mess. He is speechless. And friends, this is a picture of grief, anger, and mourning over sin. He is beside himself, frustrated with the people. And it appears that as he is doing that, in the context of what's going on, the news gets out, and slowly people who are also trembling at the word of God come and sit with him. It's no longer just Ezra. It's the community around Ezra. Why? Because they're trembling at the words of the God of Israel. Friends, trembling is precisely what God wants his people to do. 
Listen to Isaiah 66, verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Friends, the Bible is not an academic book. It's not a manual for living as if it's just another book on the shelf you can turn to. It is God's word and God speaks with authority and he speaks with authority because he cares about his children. Not to reign on our parade. He cares about us. The question for us is, are we still shocked at sin? Are we stuck dumb at the sinfulness of our sin? In other words, how how awful and sinful that sin is. Or have we over time allowed the shock of sin to dwindle away? It's all around us. So we've become accustomed to it. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones in his assessment. He says, I cannot help feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. He goes on and he says, they have failed to see that they must be convinced of sin before they can ever experience joy. They do not like the doctrine of sin. They dislike it intensely and they object to its being preached. They want joy apart from the conviction of sin, but that is impossible. It can never be obtained. Conviction is an essential preliminary to true conversion. That's why on a Sunday morning, we're not trying to hype you up with the music so you can have joy. Because joy comes as a result of encountering God through His Word and being confronted with what He wants to say to you. He's saying it lovingly. Sometimes He's saying it boldly. Sometimes He has to come and slap you. Why? Because He wants to pull you to safety. Ezra's sitting appalled. Ezra is now also kneeling ashamed. Look at verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell on my knees and spread out my hands. You see this wonderful physical picture of what's going on, right? Torn clothes, a picture of anguish. On his knees, a picture of humiliation. Hands raised and spread out to the Lord, a picture of pleading and desperation before God. And what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. (laughs) Lord, how can I even talk to you right now? With all this is going on, people violating your commandment, how can I even approach you? I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. My friends, don't demean the external that you're seeing here as of no consequence. It is what God calls us to do. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, this is what we read. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. There is the physical side, but the point of the physical side is to express what is happening inside. Friends, do you mourn over the sinfulness of your sin? Do you see how it is an offense to God? Do you mourn over the sinfulness of the sin that happens in the context of your community? As in like your community of the church? When someone falls flat on their face in sin, they're part of gateway, how do you respond? Well, I'm not going to hang around with those people anymore. I'm not going to talk to them. Or are you going to God broken? Because you have partnered with them as a member of Gateway Bible Church. You feel what they're feeling and the sin that they are entangled with. And your heart is saying, I want to help them. Two different things. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. He's giving some chilling words as he describes the false revivalism under Charles Finney. And here's what he says. A very great deal, a great portion of modern revivalism has been more a curse than a blessing because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they have known their misery. Restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never never making him say, Father, I have sinned. 
How can he be healed who is not sick? Or he be satisfied with the bread of life who is not hungry? The old-fashioned sense of sin is despised. The consequence is that men leap into religion, then leap out again. Unhumbled, they come to church. Unhumbled, they remain in it. Unhumbled, they go from it. It's a shame, and he mourns at the sinfulness of sin. Do you see the sinfulness of sin in your life? Do you see that it is your sin that put Christ on the cross? Do you see that when you are angry with your children, you're not only offending your children, you are also offending God. It is a vile offense against God. When you selfishly function as if the world revolves around you and you have to have what you want and what you say is important, that you have made yourself an object of worship that those around you are supposed to idolize. Do you see that when you are constantly complaining that you're showing your lack of trust in the sovereignty of God and His promised care of your soul? Friends, do we see our sin? Do we see the seriousness of the sin and its offense against God? Do we weep over our sin? When Ezra finds out about Israel's sin, he doesn't run away from Israel. He runs to his people. He identifies with Israel and with the sin Israel had committed. He takes Israel's sin seriously. Friends, what it would be like if you met with a doctor and he found out that you had cancer, but he just says, take two ibuprofen and call me in a few days. What kind of friend would he be? Or your house is burning down and you call the fire department and they say, well, houses do burn. We're just going to let it run its course. We understand fire, so just let it burn. Or a policeman who arrives at the scene of a robbery and says, boys will be boys. Friends, God is calling us to tremble. To tremble at his word and to mourn over the seriousness of sin. Agree with the conclusion of Scripture. Mourn over the sinfulness of sin. Here's the third thing. Confess your sin before the just and merciful God. You see, these first few verses, verses 1 through 4, Ezra receives this news and he responds. But now from verse 5 and following, he's offering this prayer and he goes through this prayer in stages. And what we have here at the beginning is an admission of guilt. And he talks about guilt in quantity. Notice what it says again in verse 6. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Two pictures that he gives there to describe this, this, this quantity of sin. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. In other words, we're drowning in our sins here. The tsunami wave of sins has reached the shoreline and has engulfed us and it leaves us in in devastation. And then he says, our guilt is mounted up to the heavens. The stench of the trash hill of our guilt has risen up. I don't know about you, when I drive down I-880 and I'm going down past Fremont, I roll my windows up because there's a dump down there. And the picture here is that it's not a dump that you can see. This is a dump that is mounting up like Everest to the heavens. This is what the sin of Israel looks like, friends. So it's an admission of guilt and the guilt of quantity. It's an admission of guilt and the guilt of history. Next, verse 7, from the days of our father to this day, we have been in great guilt. Notice Ezra's switch to the plural pronoun our and we. It's not them It's not you. It's not Israel. It's me. So now he's identifying himself with the sins of his people and he sees Israel's guilt through history. From the days of the fathers to this day, it's been a steady stream, a steady drip of sin and guilt 
Our sin is high, he says. Our, our, sin, our guilt has been for so long. This is great guilt. And friends, isn't that an accurate picture of our hearts? We just keep on sinning, don't we? It just keeps on mounting up. The Word of God has exposed the vastness of your sin and you're ashamedly guilty before God. Just feel the weight of that. But notice what happens next. (laughs) Verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. See it there in the text. But now, the expression but now indicates a significant moment, a significant change, something happening, something that's contrasting what has already been taking place. God has shown Israel favor. He's shown Israel grace. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that it's an amazing grace that showers wretches like us? And he describes this grace using six statements in verses 8 and 9. These are not up on the screen, but maybe see them and follow along in the passage so you can see that. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. Here's the first one, to leave us a remnant. This is grace of survival. And the point that he's making here is this. Israel used to be a huge nation. By God's grace, even though they have sinned, They are a remnant. They have survived. God's wrath has not wiped them out. His grace has left them a remnant. Secondly, to give us a secure hold. This is the grace of security. The word here literally is is a peg, a tent peg. Picture of a a peg that um, that would hold um, a tent in the wilderness anchored into the ground. This is God's grace. It's secure. That our God may brighten our eyes. So here's the grace. God's grace is a grace of encouragement. That God gives strength and revival to those who have sinned. (laughs) They're dead in their sins, but by God's grace, He brings new life. And we're not talking here about someone who's been converted. We're talking about those who are God's children who now have found themselves entangled and enslaved to sin, God, even in the midst of that, brings His grace, and it's a grace of encouragement. Yes, your sin is great, and you are right to be humiliated, but God's grace encourages us to get up again, to keep walking, and to press on. Number four, the expression is, we're not forsaken in our slavery. That's the grace of constancy constancy. God is constant even though we sin. He's not, you know, all of a sudden in one moment saying, you've done this way too much. All right, I've drawn the line. It's over with. That's not how God works. He is constant in His grace. If you're being disciplined by God, He is ever present with you. If you're living with the consequences of your sinful choices, He hasn't abandoned you. If you're overtaken, depressed, or despondent in the bondage of your sin, His grace is constant towards you. This is not what would come naturally to us. But this is what comes naturally to God, whose children are covered by the blood of Jesus. Number five, the grace of providence. We're told here he extended his steadfast love to grant us some reviving to set up the house of God. Even though Israel was sinful, he brings them back. He sets up the house of God. We've been reading about that in the book of Ezra. So all the drama and history of Ezra 1 through 6 is packed into that one statement. And then there's the grace of protection, right? He says to give protection. The word protection here describes a fence or a wall around a vineyard, set up to protect a vineyard. Hmm, doesn't somewhere in the Old Testament talk about Israel being a vineyard? See, this is God, and this is His grace. Yes, go back and and look, 
to, to what, it's, what we said earlier. We need to admit our guilt and we need to see our guilt for what it really is and how, how vast our sin is and how, how, how high that sin is. But look, God's grace is the answer to that sin. The immensity of our guilt in verses 6-7 through seven is met by the majesty of God's grace in verses 8 and 9. Friends, I am reminded of the words of J.C. Ryle who said this, Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. If we're not willing to see the sinfulness of our sin, we have a diminished view of Christ. And we have a diminished view of what He accomplished on the cross on our behalf. When we allow God's Word to reveal our sin, we are willing to mourn over our sin. It is clear that we're guilty for sure, but God's grace is greater than our guilt, right? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater, greater, greater than all of our sin. An admission of guilt, an awareness of favor, and now an appeal to mercy. And friends, verses 13 through 15, in one sense, are all over the place. We would want them to kind of finish up with a, a, a cleanness to the story, but that's not what happens here. Ezra now recounts Israel's judgment for the past sins and God's merciful restraint. He says, you have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. That's a definition of mercy. I'm not getting what I deserve. But he is now concerned that they have sinned away any future day of grace. That God has, in a sense, washed His hands of them and He's going he's to move His efforts through a different people of Israel, maybe the ones that are still in Babylon at this time. I'm done with you guys because of what you're doing. Look at verse 14. Shall we break your commandment again and intermarry with the peoples who practice those abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? In other words, you are just to do that so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. And then in this final verse, Ezra makes no petition, but instead casts himself on God's undeserved mercy. He appeals to the just God who in spite of Israel's failings has escaped to be the remnant that they are today. They, they, God in his, in his mercy, he's just, but he's allowed them mercy. And verse 15 says, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. And then he appeals to the mercy of God by placing Israel and himself in God's hands. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. Friends, there are times when we sin before God that all we can do is recognize the holiness of his character, that he's a just God and he must execute judgment and then without any excuse, appeal to him for mercy. And mercy takes place when God withholds what we deserve. So when we say in our hearts, why would he forgive me again? Why would he forgive me when I run after idolatry or I can't control my tongue, or I won't take responsibility for my actions, or my, my sin causes too much heartache to so many people, the answer is because God is merciful to His children. Ezra the priest was Israel's lifeguard, so to speak, being made aware of their 
bondage to the sin and he rushes from his seat and he swims out to them in this act of humility and he pleads for God's mercy to save Israel from their sin. Friends, there's another and his name is Jesus. And he sits on a throne like a lifeguard who was always watching his children. And you might not realize this, but he's not watching you with eyes of condemnation. He's watching you because he loves you and he cares for you and he wants you to continue growing in life. He wants to see if his children are in distress, to see if they're drifting away, to see if they're getting entangled in their sin, to see if they're going under. And when it's clear that they're drowning in their sin, his heart is to rescue them and to restore them and to give them the CPR of new life in Christ. Sometimes that restoration requires the pain of confrontation from His Word. When our hearts are exposed to our raw sinfulness, He shows us our guilt and the consequences we deserve. Yet, when we confess sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, Our sins, they are many, but what? His mercy is more. And friends, as a a lifeguard, I had counselors that I had been training to also help with watching the kids. And the Lord Jesus Christ has raised up churches with elders and pastors and people who had gathered together as a community that were all there watching, not to condemn, but watching for the health and the well-being of those who are part of the community. And there's going to come times, friends, when one of your friends, one of your co-church members is going to fall flat on their face in sin. And you're going to have a choice as to how godly you're going to respond to that sin. Or you're going to say to yourself, well, I hope, I hope they get out of this church. We don't want them here. Or you ignore them. No, we, we need to be lifeguards chasing down our brothers and friends and people who are struggling, being able to see the flopping hands of spiritual life descending into the water. What can we do? What can take place? We need God's direction that has given us through His Word to draw attention to the sinfulness of our sin and cast ourselves on His mercy. And this is not just an individual thing, this is a community thing. So in summary, I want to leave you, I want to challenge you, every one of you here this morning, with three things. Things I want to call you to do. Number one, Reflect with your Bible open like a mirror, hungry for God to speak and expose your heart and your sin. Not so that you can be simply condemned, but so that God can show you and you can be reconciled and you can be working on that sin and being restored and experience the fullness of the new life that you have in Christ. So don't avoid it. Don't run from it. Don't ignore it. Reflect. Secondly, when that sin is exposed, repent. And I know, you know, I'm not walking around with a placard here, repent, repent, as if this is some kind of kooky thing. This is natural Christian 101 language. When God exposes the sin in our heart, we're called to confess and repent of our sin. And that is a a word that means to agree with God and to turn 180 degrees around. And then to begin to pursue Christ afresh and again. And how many times do we fall down that we have to get up and we have to repent and we fall down and we are exposed and we have to get up and we repent and we start focusing again over and over and over again. That's why Ezra says here, and we've done this again. And friends, this is the reality of the nature of sin in our lives. 
Reflect, repent, and then refresh. Rejoice and be thankful for God's grace and mercy that restores your soul and renews your passion to live for Him. Some people don't know refresh because they don't reflect and they don't repent. And as a community, we're not walking around to condemn, but we are maybe saying interacting with one another and we're speaking into each other's lives about sin that may be seen and observed and doing it in such a way that is loving and, and kind and gracious, speaking the truth in love. Why? Because we want number three. We want refreshment. We want joy. We thank, want thanksgiving. We want to live in God's grace and His mercy. Friends, do you have a God-honoring response to sin in your life and the lives of others? May we learn, not just from Ezra's example, but Ezra, I think, I believe, is pointing us to Christ because Ezra, as a priest, is representing his people, whereas Christ as our priest represents us before the Father. What a great Savior we have who loves us and pursues us and restores us. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the weightiness of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that you want us to see our sin not because you want to tell us how bad we are. We already know that. But Lord, you, you, you want that because you want us to live in abundance in this life. We would no longer be entangled by the snare of sin. There would be freedom because of Christ. We can come together and sing songs that talk about joy and the wonder of our salvation and actually know it because we are allowing you to speak into our lives through your word. May we not feel like talking about sin is archaic. Somehow not needed anymore as if it's an offense to us even. Oh Lord, throughout your word, it is the central thing, Lord, because Jesus Christ, your son, came to this earth not just to live a good example, but to go to a cross and to die on that cross as the sacrifice for our sin. And in doing so, to give us new life and to give us abundant life. Oh Lord, we may we Love to live in that, to do that for your glory. Help us today, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen.